Besides Brian Keating is a hypocrite and he would love to accept nothing more than a Nobel Prize if offered it, the most common criticism that I get uh, regarding my book or some of my speeches is that I didn't actually lose the Nobel Prize. In other words, you have to win something in order to or be eligible to win something or be in a final competition like the World Series in order to lose the World Series, lose the Nobel Prize. Uh, and therefore, you might have to have actually lost it in order to make a criticism of the institution itself. And I always point out, yeah, I guess that's right. We can't really criticize the president of the United States unless we ran for president of the United States and, and effectively lost it. Um, but uh, we're not talking politics. We always avoid politics on the Into the Impossible podcast. We are not a safe space. We are a space for academic freedom and ideas and assaying uh, claims from experiment, from science. Uh, but I think all will agree that today's guest, uh, Professor Carl Hagen, not Carl Sagan, Carl Hagen of the University of Rochester, has a legitimate claim that he indeed lost the Nobel Prize. And I'm quoting from my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, the book of the same name, uh, a section about him and my late great mentor, uh, Dr. Jerry Goralnik, who is my professor of advanced quantum mechanics and group theory at uh, Brown University back in the 90s when I was uh, fortunate enough to be in Jerry's class. Jerry and Carl, today's guest, worked very closely together. And Jerry was one of the sweetest people I ever ever knew and one of my greatest influences. As you can tell when you read Losing the Nobel Prize, available in every format possible. Uh, and I want to read the chapter, uh, two sections that are relevant to uh, the guest today, which is Carl Hagen. Uh, that appear in my book. So they both appear, I, I always say there's three chapters in my book out of 11 chapters that deal with the Nobel Prize. I helpfully color-coded them gray, or Norton, my publisher, allowed me to color-code them in gray in order to easily identify in case you want to skip. But I hope you won't want to skip the sections about Nobel Prize Reformation, which I call three lenses that are broken and in need of repair in order to restore a noble vision, L-E, vision. And so one of these uh, chapters, the first one, is called, uh, it's chapter five, it's called Broken Lens Number One, the Nobel Prize's credit problem. So I have this cute little thing, uh, credit, cash, collaboration. These are the three different uh, pillars that are broken, these lenses that are broken in need of repair to restore this noble vision. And I quote from a Nobel Prize winner, George Bernard Shaw, I can forgive Alfred Nobel for having invented dynamite, but only a fiend in human form could have invented the Nobel Prize. Uh, so he was always quip, quick with a quip. And uh, in uh, Chapter 5, I go on, I talk about Jerry Goralnik, my, my wonderful mensch of a teacher at Brown University, who taught me so much about not only group theory, which was his ostensible job, but taught me about life and what it's like to be a professor and what it's like to aspire to greatness and, and sometimes come up short. I miss uh, Jerry tremendously. But uh, in the section about this is regarding the so-called Higgs boson, which is the subject of today's guest appearance. Uh, and it re revolves around the incident that surrounded the 2013 Nobel Prize award ceremony, which was awarded to just two of the rightful, perhaps seven contestants. That means five people lost the Nobel Prize in one form or another. So I'm talking about why this is so bad and what's wrong with uh, what happened uh, in the 2013 Nobel Prize. And this affected today's guest, Carl Hagen, as I'll point out. 
so I say, but this was not the troubling aspect of the 2013 Nobel Prize. And this, this referring to the long elapsed time between the prize uh, being awarded in 2013 and the prediction of the effect for which it was ostensibly awarded uh, to Englert and Higgs. What troubled me is that the committee allows the prize to go to three scientists at most. It's another broken lens, which I will discuss in Chapter 13. Yet approximately 6,000 scientists worked on the two experiments, ATLAS and CMS, at the LHC. And even with this arbitrary limitation to three prize winners, the prize was awarded to only two physicists, despite there being at least three other living physicists who played a significant role in the discovery. One of the overlooked physicists was Jerry Goralnik, one of my mentors at Brown University. His official job was to teach me advanced topics in quantum mechanics, but I learned much more from him. Most of all, what it takes to lead young scientists in their profession. Jerry was a brilliant scientist and a mensch. His paper, co-authored by uh, Carl Hagen and Tom Kibble, appeared in the same 1964 edition of Physical Review Letters as Englert and Robert Braut's paper. Many physicists regard Goralnik, H Hagen, and Kibble's paper as at least equal to the contemporaneous papers by Englert and Braut and by Higgs. Uh, of all the papers that could claim priority in predicting the boson, theirs was the one that truly solved the particularly vexing technical issue of the so-called unwanted Goldstone boson. But Jerry never seemed bitter about losing a share of the 2013 Nobel Prize. After the award to Englert and Higgs, Jerry said, It's a wonderful feeling of great satisfaction and amazement. We started off to solve an interesting and challenging and abstract problem. We were surprised by the answer that turned up. And that really summarizes Jerry's attitude. And from what I've learned of, of Carl Hagen himself, Professor Hagen, uh, he too has this, uh, this notion that the, that the prize is secondary in importance. But I do think the prize needs to be reformed, and I plan to talk about that. And by the time you listen to this, I will have already recorded the interview with Professor Hagen. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, from all the research I've done on him, uh, he could not be any more impressive than he actually is. Uh, how much he's accomplished, he still goes to work every day. This is more than 50 years uh, after the, uh, the publication of the paper, which rightfully uh, should have won him the Nobel Prize. Again, he is very much alive. He should live and be well to age 120, as we say. And uh, the last part I want to read uh, from chapter, um, chapter 13 is, involves a broken lens that I call the Nobel Prize's collaboration problem, which uh, is in part about the f a pernicious effect of the Nobel Prize to, uh, to cause collaborations which were heretofore healthy to collapse. And uh, it's, it's really a quite a detrimental problem that collaborations and ideas which should be most kind of coming to fruition just at the moment that they get recognized, these, these can sometimes collapse under the weight of university, public relations machines, media, maelstroms, and so forth. And all of this could be rectified. And all the Nobel Prize winners I've talked to, this is the one thing they all agree upon, uh, is that it should go to more people. And in the case of, of the Nobel Prize awarded to, um, awarded to just to Brout and uh, Englert and to uh, Higgs, I think it easily could have been rectified to award at least all the living theorists, and hopefully, or, or, or in 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 preference, my preference would have been include some of the experimentalists, maybe all the experimentalists. What law of nature, you know, prevents all the people that participated from sharing some portion of the prize monetarily and by prestige? After all, that's what happens with the Nobel Peace Prize. 
thousands of people can potentially win it has not diminished uh, that aspect of the Peace Prize has not led to any diminishment of how often it's sought out. So the collaboration problem, Broken Lens 3, uh, says, uh, imagine the outcry, begins by saying, imagine the outcry of the legendary 2016 U.S. Men's Olympic 4 by 200 meter freestyle Olympic team, Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte, Connor Dwyer, and Townley Haas obliterated their competition and came in first, but only Haas, Lochte, and Dwyer received medals with nothing, not even a silver medal for Phelps. Unfair, you would say, and you'd be right. And I go in and talk about how you know, this left out, this mechanism, which should be rightfully called, and even Peter Higgs himself would call it, the A-B-E-G-H-H-K-T-H mechanism, standing for Philip Anderson, Robert Brown, Francois Englert, Jerry, Jerry Gorelnik, Carl Hagen, Peter Higgs, Tom Kibble, and Gerard Tehuft. All except for Brout were still living in 2013. So um, I'm very excited to uh, w welcome you all after this lengthy introduction. I do hope you'll uh, pick up a copy of my book. Uh, I'll also hope and enjoin upon you to please leave a review of the podcast on Apple iTunes or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Leave a rating and review so we can get more great guests. We have some uh, Nobel Prize winners coming up in the very near future on the Into the Impossible podcast. And I'll be sharing some more stories from the book uh, and some of the adventures as this Nobel uh, annunciation season, as I call it, uh, comes uh, to, to the forefront. So I hope you'll enjoy the ride and stay tuned. It's pretty wild. It culminates on Coronation Day, which is December 10th, not Alfred Nobel's birthday, the day he died, way back 1896. And that's when the Nobel Prizes are awarded each year. It's a national holiday. I'm kind of curious if the Nobel Prizes will even be awarded this year in person due to COVID. Uh, Sweden has had a different approach, shall we say, from the rest of the Western Hemisphere uh, and Europe uh, with regard to COVID. Uh, we'll see what happens. Leave your comments. Do you think in the chat below, uh, do you think there'll be an in-person Nobel Prize ceremony this year on December 10th, Alfred Nobel's death day? Uh, it would be unprecedented, but these are unprecedented times. Thank you so much for bearing with me in this long-winded introduction to a most remarkable individual, and I just want to take great advantage of his time uh, because he's such a special, special treasure, a living legend, Dr. Carl Hagen. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It is such a thrill, such a treat to be speaking with none other than Professor C.R. Carl Richard or Dick Hagen, uh, who was born on the 2nd of February, 1937. He's a professor of physics at the University of Rochester. He's noted for many, many contributions, including uh, fundamental contributions to the, to the standard model of particle physics and the, uh, the, the discovery of a mechanism related to spontaneous symmetry breaking, conventionally known as the Higgs mechanism, but we're going to get into that because I think it's incredibly important. Issues of collaboration and issues of, uh, of attribution within all of science, but in particular in the work that was done in this field that's so near and dear to my heart. Uh, so he's had so many awards. Uh, I can't even list all the things he's worked on. And I think I'll need another podcast with you, Dick, to discuss, uh, to discuss things like the Aronoff-Bohm effect, the Chern-Simons work that you've done. 
But uh, to begin with, I wanted to say that you got your PhD, um, your master's, and your bachelor's from MIT. And at MIT, your, uh, your doctoral thesis was in quantum electrodynamics. You've been at University of Rochester since 1963. I understand you go in there all the time. You won uh, an award for excellence in teaching. You've won uh, many honorary doctorates from, uh, from different institutions. Referee, outstanding referee from the American Physical Society, winner of the Sakurai Prize, the APS Fellow Award, uh, just uh, such an outstanding uh, list of contributions. We need like three podcasts to introduce you fully. How are you doing today, Dick? I'm doing pretty well, uh, considering the climate out there, the pandemic and uh, increasing age, uh, which uh, slows me down a bit. But uh, all things, I guess I'm doing okay. <laughs> so I wrote about you. I've known about you, of course, my whole professional career, and I studied under... Uh, none other than your close friend uh, for many, many decades. And I remember our mutual friend, Jerry Goralnik, speaking so highly of you. As I write in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, about the, this invention that is, is known as the, as the Higgs mechanism, uh, the Higgs boson, but that Higgs himself, allegedly, Peter Higgs, calls it the A-B-E-G-H-H-K apostrophe T-H mechanism, standing for Philip Anderson, Robert Brout, Francois Engler, Jerry Goralnik, Carl Hagen, uh, Peter Higgs, Tom Kibble, and Gerald Tooft. All except for Brout, I write. We're living in the year 2013 when the Nobel Prize was awarded to, to uh, Higgs and Engler. And we'll certainly get into that. But before we do, I want to uh, take you back a little bit uh, farther in time than 2013 and take you back to your, to your childhood. One of your friends we were discussing before we started recording that I'm sort of related to you in a way, maybe influentially, through your uh, friendship with uh, one of the greatest uh, you know, scientists that I ever knew and greatest uh, teachers that I ever knew, and that's uh, Jerry Goralnik. And it says here that, uh, and this is a book by Ian Sample, I'm holding it up, called Massive, The Hunt for the God Particle. And on uh, page 60 of this wonderful book, we talk about the difference uh, in, in Jerry's life when and, and you come into the story, he talks about meeting you in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A group of physicists was circling around the same problem that Higgs, Brout, and Englert were already working on. None knew that uh, uh, what the others were up to, or even that they were in competition for what became one of the greatest prizes in modern physics. As undergraduates, Jerry Goralnik and Dick Hagen were inseparable. Goralnik went to Harvard while Hagen went to MIT, but the two institutions shared lectures that they both attended. The two were awestruck by Julian Schwinger, a Harvard physicist whose work shaped quantum electrodynamics in the 40s. And when Schwinger arrived for a lecture, he started writing down equations at the top left corner of the board and kept writing until he reached the bottom right, at which point he stopped, quietly strolled out of the room <laughs> and left. His lecture seemed impenetrable at first, but persevere and the man's genius was clear. And I think uh, the friendship is what I first want to get into. Uh, how did you and Jerry meet? I've never uh, fully understood the actual meeting between the two of you guys that was so momentous for physics and for you personally. Yes, well, uh, we both went to MIT as undergrads, and he's from Iowa, and I was from the city of Chicago. And uh, at MIT, you're all mixed in with all, every other major and so forth your first year, and it's only as a sophomore you get to... Uh, meet your fellow would-be physicists. And uh, Jerry sometimes reminded me the way he became aware of me 
was we were in our sophomore E&M class, and according to him anyway, I was bitching to the uh, professor about something or other that he'd uh, not given me credit for and so forth, and he formed uh, maybe some adverse opinion about uh, me, but uh, nonetheless, we made a connection and uh, just grew and stayed uh, like Topsy, it just grew. So uh, uh, we've been uh, pals ever since. Uh, when we finished our bachelor's degree, uh, yes, uh, he went to Harvard, I stayed at MIT. I guess I'm a creature of habit. I like the things that I'm familiar with, so that was familiar to me. But uh, that didn't end it. Uh, we uh, went to Schwinger's lectures, as you uh, uh, remarked. And since I mentioned about the avuncular relation between us, I'll also re I could remark that I'm a grandchild of Schwinger because his student Johnson was my advisor at MIT. But OK, so uh, anyway, we uh, continued uh, our association. We went to the Schwinger lectures uh, religiously, and uh, we sampled the social scene there in Cambridge, uh, stances and all that uh, stuff. He went to uh, London, and uh, so uh, I went to Rochester. And uh, so how did I end up in London? Well, I, I did a paper at that time, which I had gave a catchy title to, uh, Elementary Particles as Elementary Particles. Kind of sounds kind of redundant, but uh, uh, it was sort of a play on uh, the uh, work of Jeffrey Chu. Uh, and he was, of course, popularizing the bootstrap theory. Nothing was more fundamental than anything else. Uh, just they brought each other into existence and so forth. And I didn't uh, get particularly attracted by that point of view. So I did this paper, Elementary Particles, Elementary Particles. And um, the preprint got a little bit of attention at uh, Imperial College, where Jerry was. And uh, no doubt he says, and then, well, he's my old pal, and you can get him to come here on the cheap. So why not uh, do that? So uh, I went to London, and um, I actually stayed with the Gronlicks there in their uh, nice little pad in Hempstead. And uh, well, that was uh, good. We drove into work every day and vice versa and uh, had plenty of time to talk about the things that uh, we were dealing with. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Schwinger, and um, I think it was uh, pretty interesting, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing, as Sample writes in, uh, in Massive, he said, tensions over credit run particularly high when the work in question is worthy of a Nobel Prize. And I should stop and say, you know, uh, my friend Eric Weinstein and I have talked about this. There are certain uh, awards where the Nobel Prize gives gives, um, kind of uh, confers upon the recipient a sort of aura and honor. And then there are prizes uh, like this award uh, that you participated so crucially and inextricably with that I think give prestige to the prize. And I think uh, a similar event happened with uh, with uh, Schwinger and, and Feynman and Tamanga. And 
he writes about that in in the in the book's uh, massive uh, sample. He says Steven Weinberg said it was a pity the Nobel Committee failed to award Freeman Dyson the prize for his contribution to sorting out quantum electrodynamics in the 1940s. And of course, uh, you know, I knew Freeman very well. He would come here in the uh, in the winters, in the Princeton winters, to escape those rather. And he would come. He was a member of the Jasons that met here in San Diego and La Jolla. And he never seemed bitter about it, but uh, it was the kind of thing that he almost felt like, at one point I felt like he said maybe something to the effect that he was glad he never got it because now everybody asked him, how does it feel not to win a Nobel Prize? <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, the, as I said, the contributions that you made are so inextricable to this. I want to take it back. How does an idea like the mechanism that you conceived of, which in many ways, you know, it's always they say better to have a third party praise you. So you don't really know me. Uh, this is the first time we're meeting, but I'm going to praise you and say that the contributions that you and Jerry and Tom Kibble made are perceived by many, many people, physicists among them, myself included, as being superior in a way because it avoided uh, unwanted features. So first, can we take a step back? What inspired you to come up with this GHK mechanism? What was the, the, the collaboration like between the three of you? And was it a case of a lone genius among you or the three geniuses working together that just inspiration came? What prompted you, Dick, to come up with this phenomenal, fantastic mechanism that underpins all of, all of modern physics? Yes, well, Gary uh, uh, had been involved in this before, I arrived, and uh, he was thinking about it. And there's a paper he she did, uh, and not to embarrass him, but he said, "Well, this paper was, at least subsequently, said this paper was wrong." So he's still struggling with this, and uh, so uh, it was on his uh, agenda list. And I arrived, and uh, we started talking about it from the get-go. And uh, it went on and on. And uh, at the point at which uh, Kibble uh, joined is a bit vague in my recollection now, but uh, he uh, came in and he's a, a very smart, uh, deep guy and uh, certainly uh, contributed to the project. And uh, there's, uh, <laughs> there's one thing which... Uh, was very significant. Maybe I see you smiling. Maybe you know what I'm talking to get to, uh, because uh, it was just as we were about to mail off our paper to FizzRev Letters. Uh, Tom comes in and says, "Oh, look! I've just found these two papers by <laughs> Broughton, Englert, and Higgs, and so forth." And uh, in the spirit of being an honest uh, researcher, yes we said we, we should uh, include them. Now, I wouldn't have had any regrets if we got the thing off before Tom came in with these papers, but that's the history of it. And that uh, act uh, dogged the whole politics of the uh, symmetry breaking mechanism for 50 years. So uh, uh, there's that, uh, aspect of it, which has a little bit of unpleasantness in my memory, but uh, so be it. 
as they say now. It is what it is. Yes, it is. And and I think, you know, like my friend Freeman, and uh, I don't know if you ever got to know Freeman, but he uh, he would be the type, you know, as I felt with Jerry and you and, and Tom, that that the the prize would benefit from the prestige of having awarded it to you. And we'll get into the politics of these things in just a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, but I think I want to make a couple of points for experts out there. We have a lot of physicists that listen to this podcast. We've had five Nobel laureates on the podcast. They all listen to it. Uh, and we have uh, just you know the best and brightest. Uh, you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winner to come on the show, as uh, as I prove all the time. Uh, but uh, but I want to point out some things for the experts because we have an awful lot of them. And that why in my mind the worst thing that the Nobel Prize can do is rewrite history. And in fact, I think it does that a lot, and it does it in a way that's very pernicious to the public's understanding and appreciation of science. To the extent that this public knows about science, they might know about Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody like this, or Einstein sitting above you in the back of your office there. Uh, But they won't, uh, and they know about the Nobel Prize. But beyond that, they really don't know that much. So there's a lot of pressure on Neil deGrasse Tyson or uh, the late, great Stephen uh, Hawking, for example, had the same pressure. Uh, But the Nobel Prize Committee has this pressure every year, and I think that they often don't live up to it. And I'm speaking about this this uh, attribute that even the Nobel Prize winners I've had on my show have recognized as a serious lacuna in the prize, and that's the way that it apportions credit and it rewrites history. And so, first of all, I want to point out why the uh, why we're not. No one's saying that Higgs didn't deserve ac- ac- you know accolades and attention, but I think to point out. Uh, the fact, some of these facts, that your paper, which I'm going to call GHK, uh, is considered by most physicists, and I'm an experimentalist, I'm just a simple experimentalist, but but uh, I've studied it, and, and my fellow theorists tell me this, that the paper that you wrote is the most complete one, and even though it was published a few weeks later, as you say, it was due to the fact that you were acting as good scholars, and that you were being intellectually rigorous, and acting with academic you know, uh, ethics, you were acting in an ethical fashion. So that's one thing. You guys had a massless boson and, uh, and it showed how the Goldstone theorem, you know, certainly was not complete and in the sense was, was a failure. Maybe we can talk about this. So Brout and Engler don't have this uh, boson, but can you talk about the Goldstone and the, ma- the massless boson and why is that so important to your mechanism? Well, the mass, well, there's the, Massless boson, which is predicted by the Goldstone theorem, which yes. was the big problem, and how to get rid of it. Uh, there's a other thing that in the model that uh, we all considered, uh, you take the four degrees of freedom, which are two uh, pairs, and you combine them in such a way that three of them go together to give a massive particle, and you have this other one left over. And... We didn't put in an explicit mass term to, uh, to uh, and that would have been a, uh, a great thing if we had uh, said it's important, but that to us was not the important thing. The important thing was uh, showing that the uh, massless gauge boson mass, you could absorb this other one and become a massive uh, vector meson. So uh, that's... Uh, what we tried to do, and uh, we missed a, uh, a point there, uh, regrettably, 
but uh, it was not the important point in our uh, view of it. And then the other thing that's kind of interesting is that uh, from the history in this book and in uh, other books about the same subject, uh, it was clear that Higgs himself didn't have the boson until uh, Nambu said to basically put it in there. And Nambu, famous Nambu, I forget his first name, but he was the referee, I believe the, the lore goes, of Higgs's paper, right? So it was sort of like uh, your teacher correcting the homework in some sense. Again, we're not casting aspersions on anything that Higgs did, but, uh, but you know, the, the question of, of how this same mechanism comes to be attributed to the name of a person you know, some people it could be it could be the Nambu boson, which I guess he already has his own boson. Well, when the time comes for me to uh, discourse on why it's called the Higgs boson, uh, I have something to say. So let's let's do that then. Let's let's talk about why it is is it called that? Because I have I have I think it's caused more harm than almost any other thing named in physics. But please go on. Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> we had a uh, conference here in Rochester, Particle Physics Conference. Uh, the fellow who ran uh, Rochester Particle Physics was uh, Bob Marshak, and he was a great conference organizer. And uh, so he had this conference, and he invited uh, a lot of good people. And uh, one of the people that came was Ben Lee. And Ben Lee was the guy who uh, referred to it as the Higgs boson, and uh, he made history. That's the uh, way it's been ever since. And uh, so, um, unfortunately, but uh, that is the history of it. And when we look at the uh, the kind of way that Jerry would always tell me, and, and he would just say it as an aside, this is in the 90s, so this is decades before, decades before the actual award. It was decades before the, you know, uh, Large Hadron Collider was even constructed. And he used to say, even back then, that the most important, uh, you know, relations to learn in physics are public relations. And that, you know, he always suspected that, uh, that there was a lot of forces working on behalf of Peter Higgs to tell a story. And I always say to my students, you know, it's almost as important in terms of succeeding in physics to know how to present your research, to present your findings, which also requires that you know the history of your field. I don't know about your students, but a lot of my students are, they don't have a good grasp of the history of physics. It's not part how we teach things. Instead, we tend to teach things in the following way. There was this problem, then Einstein came along and fixed it. And then uh, he won a Nobel Prize for this. Uh, Feynman had a solution to this, uh, to this problem. Uh, you know, Wilczek and, and, and others had the solution uh, uh, to this problem, and they fixed it, and they won a Nobel Prize. I call it you know, pedagogy by prize. And I, I think that's endemic. I, I don't know, you know why we have this fascination with the Nobel Prize, but it was clear to Jerry that having not been as savvy politically and public relations-wise, I think he felt that hurt him. Going back to the 60s when we were working on this, the phrase Nobel Prize never once crossed our, our discussions. It was uh, just something we were dimly aware of it. And uh, I don't think we really grasped at the time the uh, ultimate import of all this. Yes, we knew that people were working on this, important people were working on it, so there must be something good in it. 
so we could uh, do something good and maybe enhance our careers by working on it as well. But uh, the Nobel Prize, it was just uh, something out there in the void and it just uh, uh, did not figure into our uh, reckonings at all. And uh, <coughs> it, it was only decades later, in, 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 from my perspective anyway, that this even uh, evolved into an issue. Now maybe Jerry uh, was uh, thinking about this almost as soon as we finished the project, but to me, no, I was just a project that was good, and uh, what's the next thing to work on? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Maria Mayer behind my shoulder over here. She was at UCSD at the when she won the 1963 Nobel Prize in Physics, and she said, uh, I don't really care so much. It was more fun doing the physics than winning the prize. Uh, but of course, prizes are important. They, they play a role in, um, in establishing priorities in physics, in departments, even in countries. And I wonder, did you ever notice a kind of pressure, not only coming from, say, Edinburgh, where, where Higgs was, I believe, to, but beyond to all of Europe, and basically to sort of try to frame the, the Higgs with that name, uh, especially for the prestige of, of European physics at perhaps the expense of American physics, what what do you make of that? Is, is that is that a real phenomenon, or am I just being paranoid as an American? <laughs> well, uh, I'm being paranoid as a practitioner, uh, but uh, I heard things uh, that this was going on, and I think, I hope I'm not misstating it here, but I think I heard that Tuft was one of the leaders in saying, uh, this has got to be a, a European prize. So uh, we recognize that there are certain forces against us. Uh, another thing uh, which I, I'm not sure of, but uh, I was told by Jerry that uh, Edinburgh had a person who was just uh, employed to help uh, Peter Higgs uh, on his way. So, uh, you know, there, there are these forces which uh, we didn't have available to us, but... Uh, we uh, knew that they were out there. There are all these, you know, kind of very large spreads coming out of, of CERN nowadays as they're advocating for uh, newer and some say more expensive and vaster collider experiments. Maybe we can talk about that right now as we as we talk about what's to come in particle physics. Do you see uh, what what some have noted in in um, in physics today is sort of a drought since. Uh, the discoveries that you participated in in the 60s, uh, the great work uh, in the 70s in theoretical particle physics, and somehow much less coming out that's new and original. I mean, the Higgs is certainly the biggest discovery. Of, of course, there are many experimental discoveries in the 80s, uh, Rubia and others, um, uh, and, and quark physics, Letterman and, uh, um, and others. But, but in terms of new and original physics, do you feel, as some say, there's been almost a drought in uh, new fundamental particle physics ideas uh, that can be tested by new and larger and more expensive particle accelerators. Well, uh, I'm not an experimentalist, and I'm not even a phenomenologist, uh, whatever that is. But uh, uh, so I've been once or twice removed from all these uh, uh details of advancement in the world of experimental particle physics. Uh, I haven't been bowled over by any uh, uh, 
breakthrough in theoretical physics that uh, appeals to my sense of what the universe should be like. So uh, I share the view that, yes, there's been sort of a dearth of uh, uh, progress in, in this field, so uh, regrettably. But, uh, and it, my short-sightedness is possibly to blame and my increasing uh, age <laughs> removal from the scene of active uh, work on this. And are there sorts of um, uh, parallels in the sense that it might be a very exciting time? I mean, I'd, I'm curious on your perspective on things like string theory or theories of everything for the simple fact that, you know, there's been a lot of interest lately in new, uh, new and improved, you know, uh, theories of everything. And I, and I think I'd like to know from you, why do you think people are so interested and why do you think uh, this particle, which, you know, as Ian Sample calls it, the God particle, Leon Letterman called it that, but I think, I think there's a backstory behind the name, the God particle. Can you explain how it, it got that name? And then I have a follow-up after that. Well, uh, I don't know any uh, great detail about the origin of the name, but uh, when uh, Letterman came out with that, uh, uh, I was um, pleased. I mean, it seemed like a bit of excessive public relations, but uh, nonetheless, it was good. It was always good to say, uh, to think anyway, that I had some kind of hand in the uh, addition of the God particle to the uh, elementary particle zoo. And uh, I uh, don't have any uh, uh, particular uh, of course, I went back in uh, the subsequent realms, the string theory. Well, uh, I never got into it. One, I guess the the uh, backing for it always seemed to be a bit strange to me. And uh, I didn't have the deep mathematics that uh, was required in order to contribute to this in a meaningful way. So I just sort of uh, took the uh, attitude that, uh, well, let it come forth, show us what it can do. And there are other physicists of note who have said, yeah, predict something. And uh, I've been predicting, and uh, there it is. It's, uh, it's, it's laid uh, fallow, and uh, uh, we'll see uh, whether it's part of the uh, particle physics theory of 50 years from now. I'm skeptical, but. Uh, I have no, uh, nothing to lose if it is. Some say that uh, that he named it that Letterman uh, named it that because uh, he actually intended to call it the God, D A M N particle, uh, yeah, because yeah. it sort of had these very bizarre and mysterious properties. In what sense is the is the Higgs a unique, you know, kind of notion? What what makes it and this particle and this mechanism so unique and interesting? And and why has it? The effect that you that you came up with and devised, invented, uh, has such persistence. And, and then I want to ask you. Uh, actually, you don't have to answer that question. Let me ask you a first question, uh, Dick. I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, what is uh, you know what is in your mind? Is something like your mechanism is that created? Is that discovered? You know, we say about mathematics. I've had Jim Simons on the podcast, uh, eminent mathematician and scientist. And he believes math is both invented and discovered. But what about a theoretical idea in physics? Well, uh, 
is it made or is it discovered? Well, it had had to be there. It, uh, the theories uh, of, uh, of uh, elementary particles, gauge theories of uh, elementary particles, they foundered on the issue of, uh, of mass. And it was a... Um, it was a killing problem that uh, confronted us and uh, it had to be discovered. Unfortunately, the mathematics uh, allowed for the insertion of the ideas that we uh, came up with and uh, it emerged. Now, uh, we did one particular model, uh, simplest model, the one that all of us have done and there might have been more complicated models, and no, no doubt a lot of them have been used in subsequent years. But uh, a lot of us think physics is basically simple and should uh, be elucidated by discovering uh, things in very simple models. And okay, it was, I think. So uh, that's uh, how it came to pass and uh, my view of it, I guess. And what do you make of, um, of, of the kind of the extremely long period of time that it took between prediction by you and your colleagues and friends to discovery? Uh, we often hear things like trust the science and trust scientists, et cetera. Uh, but what happens when it takes 50, what, 56 years or something like that uh, between prediction and discovery? What, how, how do you persevere for such a long period of time with the with the with confidence or were you nervous how did you possibly handle that pressure for decades and decades well to be quite honest it was not uh, something that i thought about at all it was something which uh, i look back upon as a interesting uh, productive physics problem which uh, jerry and i and tom worked on uh, was there going to be an ultimate uh, proof of what we had done? And I guess, as you uh, re remarked a bit back, uh, the LHC came along and made all this possible. And then uh, people started thinking uh, that, okay, we could uh, uh, find the scalar boson. Uh, I don't call it the Higgs, but scalar boson. It's good. Uh, but, uh, I'll start doing that too. Actually, and then, then there was all this talk of Nobel Prize, and oh, okay, that's that's great. But we started counting up to six, and the arithmetic wasn't uh, working out for us. So, uh, so uh, that uh, wasn't too promising. But, uh, <laughs> right, and then uh, and and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Uh, if there was a Hagen Prize, uh, for all I know, maybe there is one, or there will be one. Uh, you've won so many accolades and awards, but let's say you were devising a prize that um, had the same goals uh, abstractly that Alfred Nobel had, which is to recognize contributions by science to the betterment of all mankind, as he put it. What, uh, how would you change the rules? What, what differences would you make, or are they fine just as is? <laughs> Well, uh, the rules aren't fine the way they are, from my perspective. Uh, there would have to be uh, certain uh, changes in uh, who's eligible, how many are eligible, and so forth. But uh, uh, I think Nobel's original charge is uh, something that uh, I would be hard-pressed to uh, improve upon. And uh, I, 
uh, am always reluctant to try to force people in a certain direction that, that appeals to my particular sense of order by saying, oh, here's this big prize you'll get if you uh, show that what I'm thinking about is correct. So, no, uh, if there could be a uh, Nobel Prize prime or something like that, that would be the uh, uh, route that I would um, advocate. And uh, again, with the slackening of the uh, rules, uh, uh, it shouldn't be one, two, or three, or four, five, six, <laughs> and uh, should, how, how do you recognize things which are these huge collaborations, uh, which you can uh, relate to uh, even better than I. So, uh, yeah, the, the issue of how you uh, bring those into the fold uh, would have to be uh, carefully thought out. And that's not something which I have done and no one's asked me to do it. So uh, that's uh, where we are. Uh, okay. Um, well, that certainly uh, comports with what many of my colleagues and friends uh, say as well. I, I uh, resonate with what you're saying. I want to uh, finish up in the last few minutes by asking you uh, some questions about your philosophy and the meaning of life as a physicist, at least, from a perspective of a great career, a long career. I wish you even longer uh, in this practice. Uh, you won a teaching award for outstanding teaching uh, not that long ago. I want to ask you, um, what is it about teaching that you love? Is, is there something that particularly appeals to you about teaching itself? Well, I think it's the interaction with the students that uh, uh, I enjoy so much. And uh, for the last couple decades, I've been teaching a course in undergraduate uh, quantum mechanics, upper level. And uh, I... Uh, I had a certain amount of fame in the uh, department for my uh, the difficult problems I gave them. I mean, they weren't beyond their ken, but they taxed them to the utmost. And uh, the students liked that. And uh, it uh, was a great part of my uh, teaching career. And the uh, thing is, uh, now that has been made more difficult because of the pandemic. And actually, uh, it caused me to decide I'm going to retire now. I'm, I'm not uh, into this. And uh, if I can't uh, interact with the students, uh, except remotely or with a, with a mask, it's not something I can uh, properly continue in. So the department put its resources into someone who is more amenable to that new style of uh, teaching. It's very challenging, and I, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic. I'm generally an optimistic person, but I'm not terribly optimistic about this finding a cure, et cetera. And and certainly, you should you should take care of your health. You're in a, an older age bracket, obviously, and being exposed to students could come with some risk. So, but uh, you've had you've had a very legendary career. I want to take you back uh, to your earliest. Uh, you know, kind of a love of physics. What inspired you about physics and in particular theoretical physics? What is it about it that is so uh, captivating to you that sustained such a, you know, six decade long career? Well, let me begin on a rather mundane level. Um, I uh, went to MIT 
uh, I thought I was going to be an electrical engineer. I didn't even know that people studied physics as a full-time career. So uh, when you get there, they divide you up into sections, like 30 sections there. So you're in with a whole bunch of other intended majors. And uh, so during the course of that year, uh, I interacted with them and uh, examined where my successes were. And I said to myself, hey, look, all the smart people are doing physics. <laughs> I think I, I've done as well as they have, so maybe I should do that too. Now, that's a heck of a reason. But uh, I uh, did go into uh, physics in my sophomore year and met Jerry and so forth. And uh, why theoretical physics? I, I don't know. I was never a tinkerer. I didn't uh, build uh, radios or anything like that. So, uh, and I like the mathematics. So where else am I going to go? Theoretical <laughs> physics uh, is something which has a lot of appeal. And uh, it's been good to me. And uh, I've uh, had a full life, I guess. Yeah. What uh, today, if you were starting out uh, again and you uh, magically took a pill, uh, the Hagen pill or, or whatever, and it transported you back in time uh, to a younger age, but in this day in 2020, so it kept you in time, I should say, uh, what is the most mysterious aspect of science, physics, astronomy, or maybe biology? What fascinates you most that you would most like to start your career on if you could from a pure intellectual curiosity standpoint? Well, uh, I've thought of that. And uh, uh, what would I do if I were uh, coming of maturity now? Yes. And uh, one of the things that I would probably be carefully considering is economics. And uh, I mean, it's a field which uh, gives vent to my interest in uh, mathematics, and uh, it's uh, very uh, influential in forming our view of the world right now. So, uh, uh, no, I probably would not be a scientist, but uh, you never know. <laughs> and... Uh... And then I just want to finish up with if uh, a question I ask many people have come on the show, uh, as you may or may not know, the title of my show is called the Into the Impossible Podcast, which is a quote from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who said, the only way to find out what is possible is to venture beyond the limits of the possible into the impossible. He also said that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And the last thing he uh, is kind of known for is, of course, the, the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, the book uh, that uh, was the underpinning of that particular film. And in that film, I don't know, have you seen the film 2001, A Space Odyssey by Kubrick? Yeah, I have. So there's this picture and there's this scene, several scenes with this enormous monolith, this enormous black obelisk looking thing. Uh, where you have, uh, in the opening scenes, you have these primates in Africa two million years ago throwing up a bone, and then it turns into this obelisk, and then eventually the obelisk is also on the moon. And the obelisk to Clark was sort of representative of a time capsule put by an ancient alien civilization uh, with the hopes that it would be discovered at the right time by, by human beings, and that human beings would learn from this time capsule. 
I want to ask you, uh, Feynman once said, you know, if he could summarize all of physics, he would say that everything is made of atoms and atoms obey the laws of quantum mechanics. What would you put on a time capsule, Dick, if you knew it, had a, it would last for a billion years? What statement or phrase or piece of wisdom or equation uh, would you put on such a, such a, a billion-year-long-lasting time capsule? Well, I like what you uh, quoted of Feynman, that everything's made of atoms and so forth. And, uh, uh, but it could also be appended to that, that uh, then it's made of quarks. And uh, what's beyond the quarks? And uh, don't stop looking, because uh, our history is such that there's always something beyond. Well, don't stop looking is perhaps uh, one of the best pieces of advice. I could ever get. Uh, I'm so glad I got the chance to talk to you, Dick. It's been a fascinating treat, a true honor for me. Uh, you, like uh, my late great mentor, uh, Jerry Goralnik, are true uh, mensches, uh, just, just ultimate kind of role models for physicists like me and uh, young and old. And I want to thank you so much uh, for setting this up and for making taking time out of your schedule. I wish you good health, uh, much success, and uh, perhaps you'll win a Nobel Prize in economics. Who knows? <laughs> Okay. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko.